Welcome to Do A Blessing CNS Church London's podcast, sharing the good news weekly. We hope you are blessed by today's message. I, um, I'm going to try and be as brief as I can for you. There's a couple of different things I want to cover this afternoon. Um, I want to give as much of me to you as I can whilst I'm with you. I also need to save a little bit of me because I've got a 260-mile drive home when we're done. And uh, the Bible says, be anxious for nothing. I'm not anxious to go home, but I am anticipating going home because I know I want to go see my dogs. They like my shadow. Uh, If you follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you'll occasionally see posts of me in the adventures of Alice. Alice is my little uh, white Maltese terrier. She really is like my shadow. It's the funniest thing you've seen in your life, watching me walk her around the village. I'm six foot five tall, and she's about eight inches tall. Little white ball of fur. Or if you ever see me walking my, uh, my, uh, my best friend's dogs, that's even funnier, because she's got a miniature chihuahua that stands about six inches tall and about eight inches long and fits in the palm of my hand. And I'm not quite sure how every time I go to the vets, I'm the largest man in the place, and I always seem to be carrying the smallest dog, but it happens. So uh, it's been a blessing to be here with you. I thank you again, and to your pastor and his beautiful wife, who has the unfortunate task of being one of my protégés. So if you wonder why she's got more brutal over the last 12 months, you can blame me. (laughs) Praise God. Okay, uh... I'm going to try and keep the first session because I'm, I'm going to split the three hours that we've got into, into two. Uh, I'm going to try and cover three different topics. Oh, yeah. Oh, two hours, is it? Did I just say three hours or two? Ah, well, there we go. If we go three hours, we go three hours. So be it. No, I'm going to try and do two or three different things this afternoon. I think it's important. Uh, I'm going to reference Genesis 27. You don't have to read it because I'm going to cover an awful lot of Scripture One of the most important things I think that we could ever learn as believers is to read the Bible as a story. You know, until King James wrote the Bible as we know it in the King James Authorized Translation, the Bible was just a collection of stories. And uh, that King James Translation did us a huge favor by breaking it up, and it also did us a huge disservice by adding chapters and verses, because instead of knowing a story, we now cherry-pick a scripture to make, a, uh, to make the Word of God fit with our philosophy rather than making our philosophy fit with the Word of God. I've lost them already, look. Come on, sit down. I haven't got all day. So, Genesis chapter 27. Are you ready? Uh, listen, I'm not worried if you don't record it. Let's just get straight to it. Uh, that's my, are, you, are you audio taping it? Okay, so that's more important to me. I, I want everybody to listen because I'm only going to teach you this once. If I come back next year, you ain't getting the same again. Genesis chapter 27 is a story of two brothers. I'm going to paraphrase the text because I want to get through it as quickly as I can. So basically what happens is this. Uh, the old man is dying, and he tells the eldest boy, now uh, go out, get your hunting gear, go kill some, uh, some animals, make me my favorite dessert, which is, as the Bible calls it, sweet meats. It's venison for you and I that know it by today's standards. Bring it before me, and when you do that, I'm going to bless you. 
The oldest brother, you all know him as Esau, he's a man that is entitled to God's blessing, or entitled to the blessing of the firstborn, I should say, according to the Hebrew law, but he has very little care for it. You find later in the scripture, he actually sells it for a bowl of soup. So the thing that he's entitled to get really holds no value to him. But he has a younger brother, Jacob. Later, God changes his name to Israel. And Jacob wants what he's not entitled to have. Thank you so much. He wants the blessing of the firstborn, but he can't get it because Jacob is the secondborn. He's not entitled to it by Hebrew law. But his mother comes up with a plan. She says, I'll make the sweetmeats that your father likes. You dress up like your brother because I've got his clothes in my closet at home. You take the meat in. You present it to your father because he's going blind. And I will watch you get the blessing. Only one problem. See, Esau is a very, very hairy man. And Jacob is as smooth as a baby's cheek. But his mother is real clever because she knows everything that needs to happen. And she says, well, here's the solution. What you're going to do is you take the skin of the goat that we're going to kill to make the venison meat for your father and the bits of the flesh that you can see, wrap the goat skin around the flesh underneath your brother's clothes. That way, when dad touches you, you'll feel hairy and you'll think it's Esau. Why am I telling you that story? Because in terms of our prosperity, there's a prophetic message in there when you understand the scripture from an esoteric point of view. There are multiple ways to understand the Bible. There's the literal translation. There's the revelation aspect that the Holy Spirit reveals as you study it. There is the implied translation, which is the things written between the text. Then every story also has an esoteric understanding. You all know what esoteric is? Who knows what esoteric is? Okay, I'm going to put it in plain English. There's a meaning outside of the meaning. It is a type and a shadow. It's showing you how it relates to your life by using characters and situations and scenarios to play out a story that point to areas of our life in this day and age. The story of Jacob and Esau is an esoteric understanding of how we can apply to our life today because Jacob is a human nature, not just a human being. Esau is a human nature, not just a human being. Their mother is a human nature. Their father, Isaac, who is blind, depicts for us as believers, wow, that's loud, that God is blind to who he blesses. Uh, let me say it again. Isaac, the blind man, shows us by the end of the story that God is not moved by what he sees. He is moved by how we make him feel. Did you miss it? You got it? God is not moved by what he sees in your life. That's why he's not responding to your situation. God is moved by how you make him feel in what you're going through. It's in the Bible, so I'm not preaching heresy. A few faces look like I am. Feeling gets the blessing. God blesses us based on how we make him feel. 
That's why missionaries in Africa and India and Sri Lanka and Asia and Indonesia, they pray for finances and never get it because God's not moved by what he sees. How many of you have been through a situation in your life when you needed God to step in and you cried out and you prayed and you fasted and you did all that and nothing changed? I, I, I broke them this morning. I'm sure I broke them this morning. Talk back to me. I don't bite. Hard. God is not moved by what he sees in your life. This whole story shows us that. So, Jacob dresses up like his brother. Goes before the father. Gives him the offering, the sweetmeats. Because you never come to God without something to offer. That just messed most of you up. Because the church has taught us all your life. Oh, whatever you're going through, just come to God. Don't you ever come to God with an empty hand. Is there a panic? What? Do you want to ask me a question? So, so what do you have to bring? If, you're, if you've got a problem or you're in a situation, what do you bring? Something to give us an offering. Doesn't matter what it is. You just bring an offering. You know, when you sow nothing, it has a harvest of nothing. Because everything you've got is a seed. No, because praise and worship is a prerequisite. Had Adam never eaten the apple, Deuteronomy 4.36 confirms we were still created to worship God. Praise and worship is not an offering. Praise and worship is a command that we were given. You know that when you understand the fall of, of uh, Lucifer and the angels, even the angels every day have to choose to worship God. Even though they were created to worship, it's still a choice. But it's not an offering. An offering is something that comes out of your life. Like people tell me, well, I tithe, so I give an offering. No, you don't. Giving, you don't give the tithe back to God. You can't give back something that somebody already owns. If you borrow my car, you don't give me back the keys as an act of worship. It's my car. They're my keys. You know, if I, if I lend you my wallet or my watch, I'm not going to lend anybody my wallet. If I lend you my watch, when you come it back, give it back to me, well, no, it was mine in the first place. You're not giving something back to me. You're returning what I already own. Same with the tithe. I'll come to you. Same with the tithe. So you've got to understand that there's something you will do that will, get, that will stir God's attention. I've said it two or three times since I've been here. Your reaction to God determines his reaction to you. So Isaac is showing us as a picture of God the Father. He's completely blind to who he blesses. Completely blind. So whatever it is you're going through, this awful situation, no matter how bad it is, it don't matter what, you, you can cry till you, you're blue in the face. You can fast till you're three stone in weight. You can do whatever you want. It's, it's not going to move God. So Jacob presents the meat. The father eats it. 
And then Jacob says, uh, Isaac says, one of the most profound things I've ever read in the text of the Bible. He says this, you sound like Jacob, but you feel like Esau. And he gives him the blessing. Gives him the thing that he was not entitled to. See, each one of us in this room wants to prosper. Each one of us wants to excel. But very few in this room are willing to do whatever it takes to get the thing that you're after. Because what it takes is you're going to have to change your whole nature. You're going to have to change your whole mindset. You're going to have to change your whole way of life and well-being. You're never going to make money spending four hours a night on Instagram. Now, when you made a couple of hundred million pounds, if you want to spend four hours a night on Instagram, you have enough money to pay other people to do everything for you, so you can do that. But we think in this day and age, if I spend four or five hours tweeting and Instagramming and doing social media, I'm going to be an influencer, I'm going to be this, that, and the other, I'm going to make millions of pounds. No, you're not. You're not at all. You might make some money. The only thing you're going to make is a nuisance of yourself. Nobody wants to see your life. And remember this, folks. Social media in this day and age is a false representation. People let you see the good things they want you to see. And even when they say they're showing you the bad, it's still contrived. Because they're not showing you how bad it is. Even in church we do it. We present our lives as a lie. You know, we let people know what we want them to know. We don't let them know what's actually going on. I know you're never going to invite me back. You say, Bishop, you broke my people. Don't just... You've got to understand that if you want to get blessed, you're going to have to feel like you're entitled to be blessed long before you are blessed. It goes back to what we started talking about yesterday. Prosperity is a mindset. It's an, it's an actionable way of life long before it's a manifestation in your life. Ask anybody that's ever achieved anything, and from the get-go, they saw themselves as that. Arnold Schwarzenegger, as a bodybuilder in Austria, had a picture of California and lived his life like he lived in California. Long before he ever got on a plane and went to America. I said something last night that messed a few people up. I said it to, to three or four people. Everybody thinks Arnold Schwarzenegger made money out of making movies, correct? Yeah? Arnold Schwarzenegger was a millionaire before he may have ever made a movie. Read his book. Talks about how he did it. Arnold Schwarzenegger had made millions of dollars in property before he ever made a movie. We just think he's a movie star. That man's made more money out of property and real estate than he ever made out of making movies. I think his movie career has made him about 60, 65 million dollars. The man's worth half a billion dollars in property. The thing that you think is going to be th the thing that prospers you isn't. The thing that you do to be prosperous will be the thing that prospers you. The thing that you do that nobody else sees you doing. Nobody saw Jacob getting dressed. Nobody saw him putting on goatskin to feel like his brother. Nobody saw him creeping into his father's tent when he's laying in the bed blind. 
But he was prepared. See, every preacher I know, every theologian I know tells you the story of Jacob and Esau is a story of deceit. It's not. It's a story of changing your nature. Changing your mindset. Changing your life from something that you're not entitled to have to being worthy of receiving something that you are entitled to have. It happens for us as New Testament believers because we have an older brother that does not need to inherit the favor of God. He created it. <clears throat> and in becoming a co-heir, a joint heir in Christ, as the Scripture tells us, we become entitled to the fullness of the blessing of the first and only born. I'm really messing up their theology now, eh? Did you get that? We, sinful, carnal human beings, are not entitled to God's blessing. We're entitled to His judgment. In coming to Him as a co-heir in Christ, adopted into the family. We take on the image of Christ and become worthy of receiving every good and pleasant thing that comes from heaven. What I'm trying to get you to understand is this. When God looks at you with a mind to bless you, does he say, well, you look like bio, but you sound like bio, you're not worthy. I hope I said your name right. Forgive me if I didn't. Or... Does he say, you look like Mal, but you sound like Jesus? You look like, are you getting it? Should have been the other way around, actually. You look like Jesus, but you sound like Mal, but you feel like Jesus. When God looks at your life, do you feel like the son that is entitled to receive? Or do you still feel like your naughtiness, your sinful self? I tell people all the time, and I stand by it 100%. If you're not blessed, it's because God doesn't look at you and feel his son. God's not looking at you to bless you. He's looking for the sun in you to pour the blessing on that part of you. Feeling is what gets the blessing. Messed you up, eh? Every preacher that's dared to take to a pulpit has given you seven keys to this and 12 principles of that of how to get the blessing of God. There's only one that's ever important. Do you feel like the sun? Because if you do, God is going to bless you. If you don't, there will be no blessing. And we mistake God's mercy for his favor every single day of our life. You see a little increase, a little prosperity, a little bit of blessing and say, I'm greatly blessed and highly favored. You are not. We are living in God's mercy. It was an old thing. Now, I come from the holiness church. And back in the days, the old, the old church mothers used to tarry around somebody at the altar for them to come through in the Holy Ghost and speak in other tongues. And, and occasionally, they'd take a little drop of oil and place it on the, the, the person's head because we had this old philosophy of just a dab will do. 
And that's how life is when you're not living in God's favor. It's a little dab of blessing here, a little dab of blessing there. You can't get through life on a dab of, do, uh, a dab of day will do. <laughs> you might be happy with a slice of the cake. I want the whole cake. I'm not greedy. There's an awful lot of people God's told me to bless. There's an awful lot of kids need feeding. There's an awful lot of churches need building. There's an awful lot of business still to be conquered. I'm sick and tired of a church that's constantly reacting to the world. You see it in the way that they present themselves. Half the churches I go to look like nightclubs. Their band play like they're in a club. The lights are like they're in a club. The smoke machines all that. I'm not trying to emulate the world because you become the thing you emulate. God told me I'm supposed to be salt and light. When I want to do business, I'll come up with ideas nobody else has done. Why? I'm going to do things a whole lot different. I'm going to let God do business through me. There's a lot to it when you understand that God is wanting to bless you and he's not blessing you because of how you're making him feel. You all still with me? Any questions so far? No? You're all too scared of me, eh? Remember this morning I said prophecy and prosperity go hand in hand. Without a man of God speaking an instruction, you won't prosper. The instruction is to change your mindset, to, ch to change your way of life. I said it yesterday in the session, Romans 12 verse 2, and being not conformed this world, but being transformed by the renewing of the mind. What was the Greek word for mind? Psyche. What does it mean? It means your subconscious nature. Your subconscious nature is Esau. You're not entitled to it. Your conscious nature is the thing that wants you to push for the thing you're not entitled to. It knows something that your subconscious don't, doesn't. Oh, what terrible English do you have? Your subconscious nature is the thing that's pre-programmed to your own destruction. But your subconscious nature has overriding will over your conscious nature. The proof of that is conscious thought is changed by a spoken word. Your mind, the frontal lobe, the frontal cortex of your mind, deep psychological stuff, now you ready for this, is involved in processing your speech. So when you think with that part of your brain, the moment you speak, it stops thinking. It's now engaged in formulating words. Can't do two things at the same time. That's a lesson for productivity as well. Just for you, a little sidebar from the lawyer in me. The most ineffective way of doing anything and prospering is multitasking. Do one thing and finish it. I've seen too many people fail from broken focus, trying to do too many things at the same time. Now, all the women tell me I'm skilled at multitasking. No, you're skilled at doing everything at 80%. Because to do anything at 100% takes total focus. I warned you yesterday. 
Won't hear preachers tell you this stuff. They're too afraid to. See, can I, can I share them with some of my experience as a minister? 90% of the churches I've ever preached in, the pastor of the church, thank God your man of God is not this way, but 90% of the churches I've ever preached in, the pastor has one goal. Get enough people through the door to pay a good amount of tithe so that he's got a decent income. Keep telling you you're going to be blessed, but never actually see you live in the full blessing of God. Because if you ever outgrow what he's teaching you, you'll realize, actually, I need someone that can lift me to a higher level of living than that person's able to do. Huh? This is why my teaching is not popular. Because 90% of the people in the congregation look like you at the moment. You know, that wonderful look of what on earth did he just say? But when it makes the transition of 18 inches from the brain to the heart, you believe it, you start to live it, suddenly you realize, okay, I'm sitting. Now, I'm fortunate because I know you're a man of God, and this is not true in this house. I want to make that very clear. But in my previous experiences, most of the people I've ever talked to realize at some point in their future, actually, I'm sitting under a man of God because that was the pastor of the church, and that's how this has always been done, that couldn't actually get me to where God wants me to be. They can just get me to where they want me to be so that they're comfortable. But you see, unless the whole body prospers, none of us do. I can back that up with Scripture. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You know, if I get a blood infection in my thumb, the whole of my blood supply is infected. It doesn't stay in the thumb. If I can get the thumb of the church to prosper and it spreads in the blood of the church, the life of the church, the whole body will prosper. But me driving some fancy car, living in a big house, and telling you how we need to prosper and you not prospering is not prosperity. So for everybody listening on the podcast, if you know a pastor like that, then pray for them because you're listening to a crook. Yes, Dewar said it. I'm not interested in me prospering and you knowing how to prosper. I'm interested in you coming to me and saying, you know, you're in the middle of signing a $62 million deal. I just signed a $100 million deal. Oh, thank Jesus, because there's a tithe coming. It was a joke if you're listening on the podcast. I want you to prosper more than I do. I want ever. I had a wonderful conversation with Brother Malachi over you guys eating. But there's something about the laws of prosperity I need you to understand. They're universal. They work for the sinner and the saint. And sinners are prospering left, right, and center, while saints still living in the, well, God, keep me humble and I'll stay poor. Catholic Church and the Anglican Church for 2,000 years has told you poverty is next to godliness. No, it ain't. Poverty is next to stupidity. Because I have never, ever been able to help a poor person by being one of them. Oh, look, he's leaving. You'll never help anybody. You'll never help anybody that's poor, that's living in poverty, that's living in lack, that's living in want, when you're living in the same mess. Birds of a feather flock together. That's an old English proverb, in case you don't know it. 
Show me the five people you spend the most time with and I will show you the rest of your life. And if nobody in that circle is making money, it's time for you to change friends. Most people I know want to be the big fish in the small pond. I want to be a small fish in a very big pond. Because if you're the biggest fish in your pond, you're in the wrong pond. And if you knew what to do to prosper, you'd already be doing it. The only reason I'm here is because you don't. Now, I can tell you my testimonies because that's what works for me. It might not work for you. But I can teach you principles. If you listen to my spiritual father, he tell you this. There's two parts of the gospel. There's the person of Jesus Christ that prepares us for eternity. And there's the principles that teach you how to live life on earth. We're so focused on the person, we don't live the principles. The church tells us you can't live the principles till you know the person. Yet sinners prosper all the time because they follow the principles and they don't even know the person. Who's the more deluded, them or me? Genesis 8 and 22 says, as long as it's hot and cold, day and night, summer and winter, seed time and harvest. So sowing and reaping works. It's one of the four laws that the universe, that we call earth, I should say, operates by. As long as it's hot and cold, well, it was hot last night, it was cold this morning. Day and night, I woke up, the sun was shining. It was dark when I went to bed, just about. Summer and winter, although not in Britain. I, I don't say we have summer and winter in Britain. I say we have long winter and short winter. <laughs> Seed time and harvest. The, the, the English translation puts the comma in the wrong place. It should read seed, comma, time and harvest. Because I used to plant corn in March. And we had to wait till first week of September. It wasn't ready the second week of March. Trouble with us is we hear these principles by preachers that stand in the pulpit and tell you, oh, sow and reap a harvest and you give today and you want to reap tomorrow. No such thing. Ten years, I farmed 572 acres of land. It's a big farm. Never seen a barn that could fill itself. Not once. Didn't matter how many times I sat there on that sofa, believing God was going to bring in the harvest, I had to get up off my blessed assurance. I have to say that because I'm not allowed to cuss. Get in that tractor, go out and work that harvest. Your prosperity determined by two things. Your willingness to work a seed, your willingness to work a harvest, and how you make God feel about it. See, the Bible says this about Job. I know I kind of, I, I said it this morning. I never let my subject get in the way of what I'm saying. I bounce all over the place, but I'm trying to get you to understand some principles. And I'm trying to get as much in as I can before I leave. The Bible says that Job built an altar every day. Physically built an altar every day. That took a lot of work. And Job is sitting in sackcloth and ashes and cries out to God, Give me something that I can bring as an offering. And in doing that, God responds to Job. Not his cry, 
Because what God says in the Dewar translation is, somebody gets something to that man that he can give as an offering. Speak soon. Somebody gives something to that man that he can give as an offering. Because when he gives the offering, I can react to what he's doing. God will not break his own law. Numbers 23.19, most important scripture you'll ever learn in your life. If Numbers 23.19 is not true, John 3.16 is a lie. You know what John 3.16 says? Every single one of us in the room probably got saved off the back of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If that is true, then Numbers 23, 19 has to be true. For God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Has he not said and shall he not do? Has he not spoken and shall it not come to pass? If the second scripture is not true, John 3, 16 is a lie. If Numbers 23, 19 is not true, 2 Chronicles 20, 20 is a lie. Believe in the Lord, you'll be established. Believe in his prophets, you'll prosper. Psalm 30, verse 5. In his favor is life. That's a lie too. Psalm 5 verse 12. I've given you all my favorite scriptures. John 15 talks about bearing fruit. More fruit and much fruit. So let me give you some practical examples. Feeling gets a blessing. So... Uh, If you could buy any car in the world if money was no object, uh, put your hand up and tell me what car you'd buy. Range Rover Evoque. It's a good car. Designed by Posh Buys. Mm. <laughs> oh, see, now we're talking. Which one? The gray one. That's helpful. Gray Mercedes, a Tesla, Range Rover Evoque. Anybody want, got, got a bit higher taste? Anybody goes, I, if money was no object, I'd buy a Lamborghini. Bentley, which one? Ooh. My best friend wants a Bentley convertible. She wants a baby blue one with a white leather interior. See, she got details. You want a red one? Red interior. What color, though? Black. Mm. I like black on black, but for the last two cars, I had silver on black, and I think my taste is changing, because every time I see a silver car with black leather, now I get excited. I don't know why. I'm getting old. So that's it. So we got a Bentley, right? Bentley, that's, you know, we're now up into the 150,000 pound mark. Phantom. Rolls Royce. Who said that? You? What color? Pink. What, like Nicki Minaj's Rolls Royce? <laughs> Nicki Minaj got a pink Rolls Royce Phantom. It's got baby pink leather interior as well. Looks like a Care Bear threw up in it. <laughs> pink Phantom. I used to have a Rolls Royce Phantom. I had a silver one, oatmeal leather interior. Registration was RR03ROL. THO. You can't have a registration plate like that. Yeah? Yeah, you can't have a registration plate like that. She, she, I tell you what, you're going to pay the DVLA an awful lot of money. Then. <laughs> That's a whole lot of faith that I ain't got. You can change the law of the country. 
hey, why not? God's done stranger things. He stopped the earth on its axis just to prove to a man of God, I can do whatever I want. Any advance on a Rolls-Royce Phantom or was that? Yeah? Nah, it's not as expensive as a Phantom. No, it's a half a million pound car. Lamborghini is what? 285 grand, I think. Bugatti, ooh, now we're way up into the million pound mark. <laughs> Was that the top of your level of the face? I can believe God for a Bugatti, but nothing more. <laughs> you manage it. You push yourself to drive it, I could tell. You know, it would be hard, but you know, you'd struggle down the shops of a Saturday afternoon in your Bugatti. I said car, we ain't got to the jet level yet. I'm on my way there. A friend of mine just bought his second jet. I told him, I ain't jealous. You still buying these baby jets. Do you want a Gulfstream? There's a reason I'm asking you this, because the next question is, you know that car that you've said you want to buy? Have you driven one? <laughs> you've been in the Bugatti and you've been in the Phantom. I've driven both. I'm, I'm fortunate. I've driven, well, I owned one and drove the other. Have you driven a Range Rover Evoque? She wants the Evoque. What else do we have? Well, we know that Shorty haven't driven a grey Mercedes. What's your favorite car? You're not into cars. You, you ride bikes, do you? Oh, man. How can you say I'm into bikes and you can't even ride one? I had a custom chopper for a while. Big, fat rear end, long pipes at the front. Beautiful car. Bike. Have you driven it? Taken it out of the street and driven it? You know that convertible that you, you want? I've driven one. I know exactly what it feels like. Uh, you've sat in one. That, that don't tell you what it feels like. When you put your foot in the accelerate and that W12 six-liter engine kicks in and it throws you in the back of your seat and you hurl down the freeway, you don't know what that feels like. I do. When you feel that, you create an emotional experience. And your emotional experience is tied to a memory. So every time you think about it, you remember what it feels like to sit there and drive it. When I wanted that Range Rover outside, and I wanted one for a long time, I just didn't make the time to buy one. But I remember when they launched in 2003 the, the L322 series Range Rover, which is the one that I drive, I went to the local Land Rover dealership and I drove it. So every time I thought about, I'm going to buy that car, I remember what it was like driving it. Why? I created an emotional experience. I could remember the smell of the leather. I could remember the feel of the steering wheel between my fingers as I gripped it. I remember how the seats felt when I set it exactly how I wanted it. I remember how quickly they got warm when I turned the heater on. Mine's nice because the one that I the one I drove didn't only had heated seats. Mine cool your bum down as well. You know, in the summer when it's too warm. Obviously not in this country, but if I was to drive somewhere else. Um, why did I do that? I created an emotional experience that is linked to a memory. Because our subconscious nature means we live according to memory. 
memory of a past experience. That's why people going through abuse and, and things like that never get over it because their subconscious nature is continually replaying the thing that they went through. Did you know that genetically every seven years your entire cellular structure is completely renewed? Psychologists, psychoanalysts, psychotherapists, even medical doctors have now proven that your entire body is your subconscious memory. Your muscles, sinews, veins, art, everything in your entire body is the thing that we call the subconscious memory. Every seven years that changes. So if you're still reliving something that happened to you 21 years ago, it means at some point in the last 21 years, your body has replayed that at least three times to keep that genetically alive in your physical being. Am I too deep? Have I lost you? So when I talk about feeling gets a blessing, you have to create a memory based on the blessing it is that you're looking for so that your subconscious nature becomes linked to the memory of the experience and keeps replaying that rather than the pain, the hurt, the shame, and all the negative talk that your parents told you when they said you're never going to amount to anything, you're not good at anything, when life told you you're rubbish, you don't deserve anything. You have to create new, new memories, new experiences that outweigh the damage of old mindsets. I know what it's like to wear a store-bought suit. I know what it's like to wear a $6,000 custom-made Brioni suit. Guess which one Dewar will choose? Correct. Number two. Why? Because when I put it on, it made me feel different. When I drove a silver Bentley Continental GT convertible with black leather interior, I remember what it felt like going down the motorway. And I promise you, I was doing 70 miles an hour. <laughs> as long as there was a one in front of it. Why? I created an emotional experience. I created a feeling that reminded me of a blessing I am looking to receive. If you want a five-bedroom house in Chelsea, don't tell me that you're believing for it if you've never walked through a five-bedroom house in Chelsea. If you don't sit daily imagining what your life would be like, if you could even afford to pay for a five-bedroom house in Chelsea, never mind afford to live it there. What, we t what, what the church teaches, and which is why I, I, my teaching is not popular, it's truth, it's just not popular. What the church teaches is, focus on the thing that you want God to bless you with. The problem is this. Say, for example, the Bentley, because that's a real, you know, it's a good place to start. That's big faith, right? It's not a, life is not enough if you have enough money to own a Bentley. Because you've got to have enough money to maintain a Bentley, to run a Bentley, to insure a Bentley. So believing for the thing that you're believing for is not enough. You have to change your mind to create the lifestyle that maintains the life that you're looking for. This is why prosperity is a mentality. It's a psychology. It's not money in the bank. Prosperity is not about a Rolex watch and a mansion and, and a Rolls Royce. 
It's living a lifestyle continuously at a level able to maintain the life you desire. Did I lose you? Got it? See, a friend of mine said to me once, I want to own a Bentley. I said, come with me. He said, what? I said, I can get you a Bentley. A friend of mine's got one for sale. He said, how much is it? I said, five grand to you. He said, five grand for a Bentley. I said, yeah. He said, man, I do that deal. I said, there's one thing before you do the deal. Let me just tell you. It's got no engine. <laughs> it's got no wheels either. It was still a Bentley. He said to me, how could you, with everything that you teach, do something like that to me? I said, because all you said was you wanted to own a Bentley. So I can make your dream come true. I was preaching once, and I said to a, a, a group of people just like yourself, tell me one of your goals. And a young lady on the third or fourth row put her hand up and said, Bishop, I want more money. I walked up to her, took a pound out of my pocket, put it on the table and said, God just answered your prayer. <laughs> she said, that's not what I believe in for. Said, but that's what you asked for. I gave you a pound. You asked for more money. I just answered your prayer. You didn't say, I'm believing for 250,000 pounds to buy a house. You said, I want more money. If I gave you a penny, I answered your prayer. You just got more money. Are you tracking? With, do you get what I'm getting to? This thing that you've been taught about prosperity is not enough. Owning the thing is not enough. Having the thing is not enough. Having a lifestyle that means that you can maintain the thing you're believing for. That's what God is trying to get us to. Because when you do that, you know the only way you'll keep it is when you keep giving. Prosperity is not about you. The stuff that we attribute to prosperity is the byproduct of you being a blessing to other people. See, God gave me a $6,000 custom-made Brioni suit. What I didn't tell you was how many suits I've given to other people. Every seed, Bible, reproduces after its own kind. I don't pay for cars because I'm blessed with them. Why? Because I've given people cars. I've given away. I have given away S-Class Mercedes, 7 Series BMW, Lexus LS. I don't give junk because I don't want a junk harvest. Don't give me your leftovers and tell me you want to be a blessing to me. Because the only thing I'm going to pray for is you get a leftover harvest. Every seed reproduces after its own kind. When God tells me to sow something, I do my best to make sure it's the best I got to give. Last car I sowed, when, it, when God told me to sow it, I knew it needed some work done on it. I didn't give it to the person and say, I've got, well, God told me to bless you with a car, but, you know, this is wrong and that's wrong. I went and got it all fixed. Got it all cleaned up. Had it valeted inside and out, sparkling like a new penny. Got the rust and the paint patched up a little bit. Tied it, made it look like I, the best that I could do with the money I had. Why? I gave the best of me. Because I wanted a best harvest in return. I wanted God to feel proud of the seed that I was sowing so that God would feel proud of the harvest he would give. 
somebody asked me once, I'd been believing for, I won't tell them what it was because it was embarrassing. And I've never got it. Why is that? There's an awful lot that we say we believe God for that we don't receive. And the reason is simple. Your faith is in the thing you're believing for, not in the God who provides. So if God ever gave you the thing you're believing for, you're out of faith. You know when, now I've had it. I've had, I had to deal with somebody very sternly about this. They were believing for a car. It wasn't a particularly expensive or luxurious over-the-top car. It was, you know, a top-of-the-range Mondeo, but that's all they talked about, right? All they talked about was this Mondeo, and everything was about this Mondeo. And then one day he said to me, you know, I've been believing for this car for, I don't know, a long time, and I've never got it. It's because that's, oh, your faith is in the car. Your faith is in the thing you're believing for. It's not in the God who provides. I never put faith in an object. I put faith in God because the object is the byproduct of my relationship. It's the byproduct. It's the overflow of the harvest. It's not the focus of it. My God is the focus of all my supply. All the stuff is ancillary. If God never gives me anything again in my life, he is still Jehovah Jireh, the Lord my provider. He is still the God who shows favor, even if he doesn't show me favor. Remember when they launched the iPad? Yeah? Everybody wanted an iPad. And I was in a season where I was between harvests. I've never been in a season of lack since I understood prosperity, but I have been between harvests. And uh, Lady G and I, that if you follow us on social media, we broadcast together a lot and do a lot of stuff together. She's traveled with me for uh, almost 12 years in ministry now. We both decided we're going to sow in expectation of a harvest. We're going to sow towards getting our iPad. So sold my first seed, right? And a couple of months later, still I've got an iPad, sowed another seed. You know, a couple of weeks later, still I've got an iPad, sold another seed. And after like the fourth or fifth seed, I said to her, do you know what? The two of us have now sown enough money towards this iPad, we could have just flipping bought one. <laughs> Sometimes you've got to recognize you might be believing for a harvest of 10,000 pounds, but God don't just drop 10,000 pounds. You get 500 pounds there and 1,000 pounds there, and 250 pounds there, and over time it all adds up to the 10,000 you're believing for. We're so stuck on this, well, you know, I sold 1,000 pounds, I'm believing God for 100,000 pounds, 100 fold, and when it doesn't happen that you get a check for 100,000 pounds, oh, God's law doesn't work, and prosperity's a load of rubbish, and these preachers are liars, and then you look over a two-year period and realize you've had 100,000 pounds. I've been blessed. I've been truly blessed. When a woman of God just gave me a plastic bag and opened it up and there was 10 grand cash in there. Bishop, just want to bless you? Not yet. <laughs> I also realized that one of the biggest harvests I'd ever believed for in my life came over a three-year period. Didn't all happen at once. God doesn't just do everything in one go. 
one of the best cars I ever owned. I didn't pay cash for. I decided I'm going to I'm going to put it on finance. And every month somebody came along and said, "God told me to pay your car." Every month, till the whole thing was paid. I never paid a thing. Didn't pay the deposit because somebody blessed me with it, and I never paid a single month. But you tell me, well, God didn't bless you because you bought that car on finance. I never paid for it. Somebody don't just walk up to you and give you a house. But God miraculously provides every month that your mortgage is paid for above your tithes and your offerings and your income. Were you living in God's blessing? Yes. We've got to stop believing that prosperity all happens in one go. Yes, you might get up and give me a testimony about God just suddenly gave you 5,000 pounds, 10,000 pounds, or God blessed you with a holiday to the Seychelles or Maldives or wherever it is. But every time you got money left over at the end of the month that you didn't expect, that's God's blessing. First thing you need to do is sow your seed. How many, oh God, do I do it, do I do it? How many tithe? One, two, everybody. You all tithe? You tithing? Not right now. Okay. So everything I got to say now from now on till the time I finish don't apply to you. I don't want to embarrass anybody. You need to tithe. If you're broke and you're not tithing, there's the first problem. When you tithe, you'll do more with 90% than you do when you keep the 100. In fact, I tithe 30%. I pay 10% to my spiritual father. I pay 10% at home. Because, you know, my mother's good soil to sow in. The Bible says, honor your mother and father. It will go well all the days of your life. And I put 10% somewhere else. Wherever I feel God tells me, I want you to put that 10%. That's more like a seed than a tithe, but I, I take a tithe of what's coming in for my seed. But, you know, when we went for dinner last night, if those of you that came and those that missed out, oh, you missed some fun. <laughs> At the end of the meal, we paid the bill and gave the waitress a tip. And if you're not tithing, that's exactly what you do to God. I don't care if you put a thousand pounds in the in, in the offering basket. If you don't pay a tithe, that's all you're doing is tipping God. It's not something God will work with. We thank you for your offering, but there's no covenant with it. There's no protection over it. I do more with seventy percent than I could do with a hundred. I just came through a season in my life. It's been eight months long. It's been probably one of the most difficult seasons I've ever had. This is, this is called real ministry now, right? This is me telling you my truth. I hate that because social media comes up. This is my truth. Who cares? <laughs> but this, this is a truth that, that I used to travel 50 weeks of the year, travel 300,000 miles a year easily, preached more times than I could count every year. 
did TV ministry, social media ministry, conferences, churches, you name it. I did the whole lot. Last year in July, I had uh, 21st of July, had a, a life-changing experience at 5 o'clock in the morning, 5.30 in the morning. And the following day, I was rushed into hospital. So I just had one of the highest, most joyous experiences in my life. And the following day, I'm sitting in a hospital bed. I went into the A&E. I thought I had a headache. And I'd had it for several days. Six days before I'd been on a plane, I'd flown, I'd done an event in Wales. I'd driven 480 miles that day uh, to do the event, 100 miles to, no, I've done more than that. No, I hadn't. I drove 100 miles to do the event, 100 miles to take um, Lady G and her family, her niece, nephew, and their children back to where we live, and then 280 miles back through to Heathrow to get on a plane at 5.30 the following morning to go do an event in Germany. Did the event in Germany, did another one in the afternoon, went to bed about 10 o'clock that night. At 4 o'clock the following morning, I was on my way to the airport to catch a 6.30 plane back to London. Monday, I got home at about 10.30 at night because I had meetings in Westminster. I had meetings, uh, I had a meeting at the House of Lords um, that day. Tuesday, I worked. Wednesday, I worked. Thursday, I worked. Friday, I was exhausted. Couldn't work anymore. Just collapsed. Spent the day just chilling. Saturday morning, got up, had this life-changing experience that I told you at 5.30 in the morning. Following day, I'm in hospital. I was not well. And I thought, well, you know, I probably just exerted myself. I'm probably a little dehydrated. Goodness knows what. See the triage nurse who takes my blood pressure, takes my, uh, my, my uh, temperature, tells me, just stay there a minute, Father, because they all know I'm a minister where I live because I do volunteering at the hospital as a chaplain. So I go in with my clerical collar and all that lot, you know. And uh, uh, most of the staff there know me. And uh, she says, just hang on a minute, Father. I'll be back in a second. The machine that's doing my blood pressure is beeping. I thought the battery was flat. You know, because I got a blood pressure monitor at home. When the battery's a little bit low, it beeps to let you know the battery's low. So I thought, oh, well, she's probably gone to get another thing. She comes in. There's a doctor standing there. And the doctor says to me, you need to come with me now. And I'm like, pardon? She said, you need to come with me now. I said, what, what are you a bit forceful? You know? She said, no, Father, I'm serious. You need to come with me now. But when the doctor tells you that three times, you kind of get a bit panicky, like, what's going on? So I get up from the little triage room, and I'm walking across the back part of the A&E where all the cubicles are, and I said to the doctor, what's wrong? She said to me, your blood pressure is so high that if I don't get it down, you are likely to have a fatal stroke any moment. My blood pressure was 195 over 162. That's enough to kill anybody. And I spent the next nine hours attached to a drip and meters and goodness knows what, whilst they tried to get my blood pressure down. I'm laying there thinking, God, what on earth is this all about? Oh, this is the devil. This is, this is just an attack of the enemy. No, it wasn't. What I'd done is for three years, I had abused my body by not living right, by schlepping here, there, and everywhere, by keeping a ridiculous schedule that an 18-year-old couldn't keep. By not sleeping, by not eating properly, I gained about six stone in weight inside of 18 months. I'd gone from, you know, extra large to extra, extra large to, oh my God, it's moving towards us. <laughs> and suddenly, overnight, everything I did stopped. And for six weeks, my blood pressure stayed at around the 160 over 120 mark and would not come down. And one day, I'm just plodding along like, ooh, I got terrible indigestion. Must have eaten something really bad yesterday or this morning. 
And at about 10 o'clock that night, my mother says to me, I don't care what you say, I am calling the doctor. Rang the doctor, because we live in a country village, like I told you yesterday, you know. And uh, they said, don't wait for us, we're sending an ambulance right now. They came, took my ECG, took my blood pressure. Next thing you know, I'm in A&E. I got pipes everywhere and things up my nose and goodness knows what. They're doing tests and the doctor walks in at 2.30 in the morning and says, well, Father, you've had a heart attack. I'm 41 thinking, what on earth is all of this about? What is going on? Now I was convinced this is an attack of the devil. You know, because we blame him for everything wrong. Half the time, the devil's just sitting there going, keep blaming me. Because as long as you're blaming me, you're not dealing with the real problem. And the real problem is you. And I'm thinking, well, this ain't prosperity. This ain't God's blessing. This is none of that. Until I realized God was literally having to let me go through what I went through to stop. Because in that stop moment, instead of being so busy doing all of life that I didn't have time to reevaluate everything, now all I had was time. I couldn't fly. I couldn't drive for more than two hours at a time because if I did, I'd look like I had elephantitis. My hands, arms, legs, ankles, feet, everything would swell up. I had, a, <laughs> I had a nervous reaction to the medication they put me on. They took me in and thought I'd had another heart attack. It wasn't. Thank God. It was just a bad reaction to one of the tablets I was on. And I'm laying there thinking, God, this is not the prosperity lifestyle you promised me. But God had my undivided attention for the last eight months. Couldn't travel. I think this is the second place I've been to for ministry in those eight months. Couldn't travel. Couldn't do anything. Didn't want to live stream every week like I wanted to do, like I used to, because that was too much like hard work. Just tired all the time. Physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally exhausted. Guess what? All this stuff I teach you about prosperity, in the middle of that, when it looked like everything was going wrong, when all the streams of income stopped, when everything dried up, when the brook was drier than a snake behind in a heat wave, God gave me the biggest business idea I've ever had. We are months away from pulling it off and overnight we'll take a business worth $62 million with assets under management from nothing. See, sometimes you've got to realize I'm where I'm at for God to get my attention because there's something in my future that he sees I could do if I listen carefully enough. What astounded me is the business that we're moving into is something I have never, ever done in my life. Never even dreamed of doing. Heard somebody mention it as a passing thought, and the Holy Spirit got hold of it. Now, instead of just sitting there, well, God, I've sown my seed. I don't know why God speaks with a Welsh accent. I've sown my seed and I'm waiting on a harvest. That's a token Welsh accent for you if you want. What I did was I took eight months to research, to plan, to strategize, to pursue mentoring, 
to pursue people that have done well in the environment I'm moving into, to learn. You may not be where you think God wants you to be at the moment, but this is an opportunity to learn about where you think God wants you to be. If you're not prospering right now, get around people that are and learn what they've got to teach you. Get around people that are and learn how did you... I, I said it yesterday. I think I said it over dinner. I might have said it here. No, it was over dinner. I don't ask divorced people for marriage advice. I ask them, where did you go wrong? If you can't tell me, you've got nothing to teach me because you're still ignorant. I don't go to bankrupt people for business advice. I ask them, where did the business go wrong? Why am I asking you that? I don't want to make the mistake you made. Mentoring is the, is the benefit of wisdom without the pain of experience. I said something that's messed a couple of people up yesterday. I think I said it you as well. You want to get into business for yourself, talking about prosperity. Don't start a business. Buy one. The fastest way to get revenue is to buy it. And one that's not failing. Never buy a business that's for sale, if that's your goal. A business that's for sale, it's for sale for one of two reasons. It's not making money anymore or the people want out because they know something you don't. There's two businesses I've got a mind to buy and neither of them are for sale. And I'm going to be like the mafia don, like I told you yesterday. I'm going to make them an offer they can't refuse. And I'm not going to put a single penny of my own money into buying that deal. I'm going to borrow equity, I'm going to borrow reputation, and I'm going to borrow their own money to pay for it. And guess what? They've already agreed. Mama didn't raise a fool. I got an option to go, to go into one business. I got five years to pay for it, which means for five years I pay them X amount of pounds every month, and they let me run their business as my own to raise money to pay for it. Guess what? If I fail, it, it, it's no good. It's good for them because they get the business back and they've been paid every month. If I succeed, it doesn't cost me that much and I still get their business and I make more money out of it. I don't know why I said that, but there we go. So for, for, oh, we'll take a five-minute break, but to understand, do you want to feel blessed? Do you want to be blessed? You're going to have to feel blessed. You're going to have to change your whole mindset here. I think we'll close out with teaching a little bit more on a prosperity mindset so that you truly understand what I'm saying. But where you're at right now is not the destination. It's the start of the journey. Whatever vehicle you get into to get you to the destination, just remember the vehicle is not the destination either. I know one guy that had to buy two different businesses that got him to the business he wanted to be in. But the two he bought that got him there, they were not the destination. They were the vehicle that got him to have the reputation he needed to get into the business he wanted to be in. You might not have prosperity right now, but get around somebody that has and borrow theirs, borrow their reputation. I told some people yesterday, I don't know if I, yeah, it was 
I think I said more over dinner than I did when I was teaching you. <laughs> but there was an old lawyer in Dallas, the most famous lawyer in the city, the also the wealthiest lawyer in the city. And a young lawyer had a, a new law firm. It was really doing bad. No clients, no, no business, nothing. He got $1,000, $1,500 left in his bank account. He made a decision. He rings up the secretary, the oldest lawyer and the most well-known lawyer in Dallas, and said, can I take him out for lunch? They book a restaurant most expensive restaurant in Dallas. His $1,000 is going to be spent on paying for lunch. And for an hour, he sits there and asks him question after question after question, writing notes, writing notes, writing notes. And the old lawyer knows exactly what's happening. This guy is trying to work out, how do I save my business? How do I save my law firm? So they finish their lunch, and they're about to leave. And as they're walking out of this restaurant with all of the elite of Dallas sitting there having their lunch, all the oil barons and the lawyers and all these people worth billions and billions of dollars. The old lawyer takes his arm and throws it around the shoulder of the young lawyer, leans in, and he's whispering something to him. And the following day, the young lawyer is inundated with phone calls. Why? Because everybody in that restaurant wanted to know who's that young guy. My prosperity didn't come because of something that I did. My prosperity came because Mike Murdoch put his arm around me. And suddenly everybody wanted to know who's that young bishop. I was sitting in the Hilton London Docklands at the very last row, back row of a Mike Murdoch partner meeting. I'd been talking to Dr. Murdoch 24 hours, first time we ever met. And his armor bearer came out during his lunch break and said, Dr. Murdoch would like you to come and have lunch with him. Would you come with me? I went round, we sat, we talked for an hour. And Dr. Murdoch told his staff, I want you to move off the front table that you're sitting on. I want Bishop Dewar and Lady G to sit there. I want them where I can see them. And by the end of the day, when I left that meeting, I couldn't carry the business card. 24 hours later, Dr. Murdoch goes on Twitter, not to me personally, goes on Twitter and tweets publicly, at Bishop Dewar, for those of you on Twitter, you can follow me, uh, <laughs> Bishop, I really wish you would come and preach my conference at the Wisdom Center. And suddenly my diary was full. You're not prosperous right now? You better get around somebody that is. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. Have a blessed week.